Welcome to the Go Big Redcast, the Husker Fan Sports Show with Dave, Honky, Mac, and Boomer. Welcome to the Go Big Redcast. I'm your host, Honky, and tonight we have a special guest, Jim in Minnesota. You can find him on Twitter at HuskersMN. Jim is a diehard Husker fan, a huge college football fan, and another one on the line of the influencers that we've interviewed in the past. We've had some great uh, conversations with Jim on Twitter, along with Jeffrey the Greek and Big Kurt with the uh, Eyes on the Big Ten podcast. That's a great show, too. Give them a listen and a follow if you get a chance. Welcome to the Redcast, Jim. Hey, thanks for having me, Honky. Huge fan of your guys' show, and, and I appreciate you uh, having me on tonight to be able to talk about some of these topics and to get in some Husker football. So thanks for having me. You're from Minnesota now. You know, what got you on to being a, a Husker football fan? Are you from Nebraska? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I actually grew up in California, kind of age three till about age 34. Decided to uh, to make a kind of a lifestyle change and kind of a career change and move to Minnesota. My mom actually is from Omaha, so we would vacation back for summers and various Christmases in, in Nebraska, and so kind of got to be able to be around family that were Husker fans. And then actually, I got a chance to go to school in Lincoln my junior year. Got to go out there in 97, had a blast. I've enjoyed uh, kind of the, the ups and downs. Hopefully, there's some more ups than, than downs in the future here, but I told Jeffrey the Greek, no, I don't want to sound like I'm putting my Nebraska arrogance hand, like, but you have no idea what it's like to celebrate a national championship. It is the, yeah. the most unbelievable experience that I've ever had as a fan. I mean, ever. It's, it's amazing. To be on top of the world is tremendous. And, you know, and I think that's what keeps us coming back as fans. Yeah. Uh, my dad was a student in the late 60s, early 70s. And I got onto campus in 95. I think collectively, between the two of us, we were students during four of the five national championship years, which is just crazy. <laughs> That's so, incredible. Yeah. yeah, what a time. It's a lot of winning. Well, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, you know, from spring football to what's going on in the Big Ten, some of the things you see up there in Minnesota. I know you went to a practice, actually, in the spring ball. But before we get to that, one of the things that got me talking with you just in the last day was a question that you posed on Twitter that I thought was really fascinating, and you got a lot of good responses on it. And it was, Husker fans, question, there is a sentimental from other Big Ten fans that I think is valid about Nebraska fans, that when Nebraska came into the Big Ten in 2011, that we didn't have an understanding and or respect of the Big Ten. Why do you think that was? And I just thought that was a fascinating question, because myself personally, I've been to every single uh, stadium other than Purdue, so I've had a chance to talk to a lot of fans. And I get that sense from some of them, where it's like, you guys came in here arrogant, or you guys came in here and didn't respect us. And I guess, let me start it with you. Why did you ask that question? And also, what did you think of some of the responses that you've been getting? Yes, you know, I think it is a really interesting question, because I think for every Husker fan is a little bit different. And you've got Husker fans that grew up in Nebraska that are next door to Iowa, you know, and you've got Husker fans like myself that grew up in California and, uh, you know, grew up in the Pac-10. And so, you know, why wasn't there this overall, I guess, knowledge base of the Big Ten or even to some degree of maybe even a lack of respect? You know, for me, at least, it was a couple of things, right? It was the uh, the games that were on TV. That was part of it. The dominance of Nebraska, that kind of superseded what else was going on in college football. And I would call myself a college football fan. As a young kid, I bought the magazines off the rack in August. I, I tried to, to know what was going on. But 
I'll be honest, I, I didn't really know that much about the Big Ten. I knew, you know, the Ohio State-Michigan game. I, I remember the Rose Bowl games pretty easily. NBC carried uh, Michigan-Notre Dame games. You know, I remember the bowl games against Northwestern, Nebraska, I think in 2000. You know, I think it was like 66-17 or something like that. I, those things kind of pieced together. And then going in in 2011, I thought at least it would be easier than it was. And so, you know, the responses were interesting. I forgotten about the Sports Illustrated cover that showed Jerry Crick with, I think, the explanation, Nebraska, the next bully in the Big Ten. And so there was obviously some national media perception as well that Nebraska was going to be able to kind of come in and be successful. And, you know, I think you can say, well, Honky Jim, they, they kind of were. I mean, year two, they were in a Big Ten championship game. Obviously didn't win it. But, you know, early on, there was some success. So, you know, some of the responses were interesting. I had somebody say, you know, the lack of TV exposure, obviously, the perceived lack of speed, which is kind of funny. I don't know if you watched the replay recently of the USC Texas championship game, but even Dan Faltonek, you know, referred to Reggie Bush in the space of, wow, I don't think these Big Ten officials have seen speed like this before. Mm-hmm. So there was even a perception out there that was floated around. So I think you add these things up and you, you've got this idea that the Big Ten is not as physical or not as fast or doesn't have enough draft picks as opposed to the Big 12. And it is kind of interesting. And there was an interview one time with Chris Borland. If you remember, he was the linebacker, linebacker for Wisconsin. Yep. Yeah. And he was, uh, he was on that team. We played the first Big Ten matchup in Nebraska and Wisconsin. And he was asked about Nebraska coming into the Big Ten and he said, yeah, we were definitely aware of the sentiment and the thought process out there from the media that Nebraska was going to come in here and, and kind of be able to do whatever they wanted. And uh, we wanted to show Nebraska that wasn't how it was going to be. <laughs> it wasn't going to go down <laughs> like that. And, you know, he's like, we definitely uh, made a point in that game to not let just Nebraska know that, but to let the, the national media know as well. But, you know, the Big Ten is a, is a very physical, uh, well-coached, disciplined team and um, I think we're finding that out right now so very interesting I don't know what you thought and one of some of the responses that you saw but I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts as well yeah one of the reasons I wanted to do the call with you is because I actually started to write a tweet and I'm like this is way too deep for a tweet I can't get everything across I want in a tweet but I I want to talk with you anyways right so my thoughts on it just right off the cuff was you know let's not revise history let's go back to 2011 and the Big Ten wasn't very good It wasn't something to be intimidated about coming into. In fact, that's not my words. That's Urban Meyer coming into here from Florida. And Urban Meyer going, we need to step up our recruiting, guys. What's going on? He changed the game. Nebraska didn't. Urban Meyer did by what he did coming into Ohio State. And I don't think that the Big Ten was an overly intimidating conference when Nebraska came into it. Now, I don't think Bo Pelini was the right coach necessarily to lead a transition into a new conference. I mean, we were so far away from playing Big Ten ball with what he had built to play Big 12 ball. I mean, we were running peso and having one linebacker on the field. And you remember that game against Wisconsin in the in the title game. We didn't have enough defense alignment with Baker Steinkruller hurt that we were starting Cameron Meredith at defensive tackle because we hadn't right. recruited enough to build up the depth that we needed. The second that Osborne made the announcement that we're joining the Big Ten, we should have been recruiting 10 defense alignment and 10 linebackers. I mean, and just built up that front seven. We had about a you know an 18-month span between that announcement and actually kicking off in the conference, and that wasn't a move that Bo was making. But regardless, the conference wasn't as good as it is now. I think Urban Meyer has just elevated it. We're going to talk more about you go down the coaching ranks of the teams that are in the West. I mean, my gosh, Brom at Purdue and what Fleck is at Minnesota. I mean, there's some great coaching now at schools that are not the Blue Blood schools. 
But the other aspect of this, and this is the one that I couldn't get it all in one tweet. You're 43, you told me, and that I'm 42, so we're right in the same boat. I'm going to put on my, my Husker arrogant hat with a, a bit of a humble brim. Nebraska in the 90s, we were dominant. And at the same time that we were dominant and everything, I go back to those Big Ten teams in 94. We don't get to play Penn State because they're going to the Rose Bowl and we're playing in the Orange Bowl. And we're playing Miami. We're playing Florida State some bowl games. And these Big Ten teams are going and playing in the Rose Bowl against average Pac-10 schools most of the time. And I think my history, this is the arrogance in me. The history of that is, well, we would have destroyed that Penn State team. Then a couple years later, we have to play Tennessee, the number three team in the country, for the national championship, the last game of Osborne. And that's when Michigan gets to go and play an average Washington State. We play Peyton Manning. They play Ryan Leaf. That's the history in my mind somewhat of that Big Ten. Like the Big Ten... I just always felt like we would dominate them if we were at our best. And the problem that has happened here over the course of the last seven, eight years is we haven't been at our best, and the Big Ten has gotten better progressively across the board, and it's culminated in the last couple years of us not even being competitive at times. And it doesn't look great, (laughs) but I agree with the question that Nebraska came in thinking we were going to dominate and everything. And the way that we've played the last eight, nine years, we clearly haven't dominated. We wouldn't have dominated the whack the way we played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I think your Urban Meyer example is great. I mean, he came in in, I think, 2012 and definitely took a look at the landscape and said, collectively, here, guys, we've got to get a lot better. If you want to compete with the SEC, this isn't going to get it done. And you even heard guys like Brett Biela kind of him and haw and, and complain about, you know, well, I want my May and June's off. I don't want to be recruiting in this period of time. And mm-hmm. you kind of saw this kind of the old guard of the Big Ten kind of be challenged in, in a way they hadn't been challenged before. I remember saying Brett Bielema complaining that the other teams, or I think even my Ben Ohio State, was trying to go after his committed players. Mm-hmm. We kind of think about that now. I mean, committed players are a free game, but even in the Big Ten back then, it was considered faux pas or, or you know, it wasn't you know kosher to go after somebody's recruits. And, and Urban Meyer changed that perception. And you're right. The Big Ten collectively was getting better. You had the influx of new coaches. You had Michigan look at themselves and saying, hey, what we have isn't good enough. We need to go out and get Jim Harbaugh. D'Antonio out of Michigan State is building a good developmental program mm-hmm. that really when we started getting going to Big Ten, they were obviously the kind of the bell cows there. And so Urban Meyer got things going in Ohio State. And even when he did, he saw trouble with uh, Mark D'Antonio. So you're right. I think it was a combination too. And then with the Big Ten money, all of a sudden now you've got teams like Minnesota, like Purdue. I mean, Purdue's paying yep. Jeff Brom six and a half million dollars. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when Daryl Hazel, you know, now they're beating Ohio State. So it definitely has evolved. And unfortunately, Nebraska has gone through its kind of a tough time with the coaching turnover. And you're right, the transition wasn't handled very well in terms of you know really understanding the rosters that we had compared to the rest of the Big Ten and what was going to be needed. And I think that all kind of plays into it, and here we are. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we can figure it out. (laughs) Well, you know, and part of this is an education for Nebraska fans, too. I I mentioned earlier I'm going to wear my arrogant hat with a humble brim, and the the combination of that is the arrogant part of me, and this is what Jim Delaney wanted when they brought Nebraska in, is you're bringing Nebraska in to win titles, and clearly we haven't. But we're here to win championships, and we got into this conference, and there's times where I felt like from some fans there's so much – emphasis on getting to the Rose Bowl. And I don't have any history with that. I I could care less about the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl means nothing to me. I want to win titles. And I didn't see the Big Ten for a long time win titles. I mean, basically from Woody Hayes all the way through, 
Michigan's you know split with us. They basically don't win a championship in that conference. And I didn't care about the Rose Bowl. So that's the arrogance of me, is that this conference doesn't care about winning titles until Urban Meyer gets here and starts making that a priority. But the humble brim that I'm wearing is that we have clearly not done that either. In fact, we've gotten to a point where, you know, right now we are coming off of four and eight, four and eight and five and seven seasons. And so we have not done the job that we're supposed to. But um, I feel like we're at a point now for Nebraska. Since 2011, we've gone through three coaching staffs and we've just had more internal issues than we needed to have for most of that time. That's finally been fixed the last three years. You know, from the chancellor to the athletic director to the head coach, we have really solid leadership. And that really helps because what we were going through, even in some of those plenty years of nine wins, it was just a mess. There was just so much dysfunction between athletic director, head coach, all that. And then when Pelini would leave and you'd bring Riley in, it was like starting over from scratch. And then when Riley leaves and we bring Frost in, it's starting over from scratch. I know the last two years have been frustrating, but I do feel like we're on level playing field now. And I think as we start to transition to looking forward, we can look at last year and it's five and seven and we earned that record. Absolutely. But if I sat there and said we could have been three and nine or that we could have been nine and three, how much better could we have been with our record without really having been that much better on the field? For me, at least, I don't get too caught up in the record. I, I just want to be able to see the growth and the ability to move forward. And, you know, obviously for us, the way we're set up as a team, and Frost has mentioned this before, is that the mindset is it's the offense's job to score points and, and the defense's job is to give the ball back to the offense. And the offense that has to be able to execute. And, you know, I think to get to that nine win season that they definitely had the potential to do. I think, you know, you look at Indiana as another game as well that, that uh, I thought that we should have won. Purdue obviously comes to mind. The offense has to be better and they weren't. It took a big step back. Yeah. Uh, I thought defensively, you know, we hear a lot of fans complain about the defense and, and Shenander. I think it's unfair. The numbers bear it out as well. I mean, the defense, I thought, performed pretty well. I thought they did a pretty good job in, in growing and, and developing. Unfortunately, you didn't have that unison with the offense, and obviously special teams was, was what it is, and it was not a good year there. But I don't think overall it wasn't as bad as, as it appeared on paper, if that makes any sense. And you're right. You're right on the spot there. Five and seven is <laughs> we owned that record. We earned that record. And I think in, with you look at the whole thing and how it shaked out with the close wins either way, I think that's kind of where we were. Maybe another win here or there. but. You know, certainly to win in this league, as we found out, I mean, you simply cannot have mishaps, you have penalties, you had confusing game plans, and obviously having a field goal kicker definitely helps as well. I I agree with you. How important is that field goal game? I mean, look at a team like Iowa that had more field goals and extra points. They won four games by a touchdown or less. Nebraska lost four games by a touchdown or less. That special team's part of the game, and Boomer is our special team's coordinator on the Redcast. He harps on that all the time. It's, it's crucial. It's important. Three games you mentioned, Purdue, Indiana, and Colorado, we were up collectively 41-3 to three on those teams to start the games, and we lost them. You should never lose those games when you get up like that. And so there's a this is a learning process for Frost as well, I think. Frost came in, and he made the statement that obviously is a great soundbite that the Big Ten's going to adjust to us. I'll stand by that with a, I'll say a 75, 25% kind of thing. I think 75% of what he said is right. I think 
If he does things the right way, the Big Ten's going to have to adjust to him 75%. But he has to adjust 25% too. And what does that adjustment look like? It could mean things like getting under center at times. It can mean having a fullback on the field every once in a while. You know, if you can't get a yard, I don't care if you're spread, shotgun, whatever. If you can't get a yard in the Big Ten when you need a yard, you're not going to win football games. Just plain and simple. And you brought up the defense earlier, and I think it's a good question to bring up is that Frost, he's very bullish offensively about, we, you know, we're going to be tops in the country, top 10, top 15, whatever it is. We're going to be an outstanding offense. But sometimes I get the sense with defense that it's almost more like we're going to be good enough on defense to get the ball back to the offense. That it's And maybe I'm reading something into that wrong, but like it's almost this fear of just saying, like, we're going to be dominant on defense. And when I look at the conference that we're in right now, there's a part of me that loves playing Wisconsin and Iowa. I just got done watching the 92 Utah-Nebraska game. And I mean, we're talking I-formations, and this is old-school football, and nobody runs this stuff anymore. Well, a couple teams kind of do. The teams that run it are the teams that we're playing, and we recruit better than those schools. And quite honestly, from a history standpoint, we here's the arrogant hat. We should be better than those schools. But if we can't beat those guys in the in the trenches, then we haven't been able to. We're not going to beat the Ohio States if we can't beat Iowa and Wisconsin in the trenches. If we can get to the point where we can beat Iowa and Wisconsin, it's going to make us better to where when we do play the Michigans and the Penn States and the Ohio States, we are going to be so much more competitive because it is going to take outstanding line play on both sides to beat the Wisconsins and the Iowas. Those are all really good points, Honky. I think one thing I was going to add about the style of play and the offense that Frost is running, if you recall back when all the national predictions came out before last season, all the sports writers were talking about Nebraska winning the West. You know, Urban Meyer on BTN also picked Nebraska to win mm-hmm. the West. And I thought what he said was interesting. It caught me off guard. He said, I'm picking to win the West because Nebraska – is the hardest team to game plan for offensively and defensively. Oh, and yeah, that's a good point. And he was very specific to say defensively. You know, I think few fans kind of thought, wow, really? Defensively? Hmm. You know, and so coming from him, I, that was a kind of earmarked that and thought, you know what? Maybe we're not as bad as we think here in terms of going into year two with the defense. But, you know, going back to what we said before, I think I've heard this said before from, um, I think it was Damon Benning on his radio show, that to be able to run the ball when you want to uh, versus when you have to, mm-hmm. that's when you take the next step in your development as a team offensively. Yep. And in the Big Ten, you have to be able to run the ball when you want to to get that one yard. You have to be able to line it up and know confidently that I'm going to get a first down on this one-yard run. There just can't be any other way around it. So I think you're starting to see Frost understand that, and I think the way we're recruiting along the offensive line would suggest that. He's taken note of and, and understands that in order to be able to win this league, it's it's not how it was in the AAC with UCF. Mm-hmm. Um, you simply can't get athletes out there in space and score 50 points a game and be able to uh, you know have your defense get a couple turnovers and call it a game. That's not going to work. The coaching's too good. The, the line play is too good. And so I think you're seeing that kind of that evolution of his offense and his mindset, really, to be able to do this. I mean, you saw here in Minnesota with the offensive line, what that meant for this team to, you know, jump from seven wins to 11 wins. There's no doubt that the offensive line played a huge role in that. I agree with you. I think you have to be able to run in this league, and there's no shortcut. There's no way around it. You brought up recruiting, and I think that's a an interesting topic with Frost. We've always talked about there's a formula at Nebraska for recruiting, and it's it hasn't changed. It's nothing new in the era of star systems that we have to recruit nationally. My issue has never been Nebraska recruiting nationally. We've always recruited it, and quite honestly, we've done better at times recruiting nationally in recent years than we have locally. 
what Frost has done to come in and to really secure the borders, to no longer lose the Drew Otts and the Noah Fants to Iowa. And, and actually, in return, to go into Iowa and get Messiah Newsom, to get Blaze Gunnerson, to actually get players out of that, to go into Minnesota and get Ben Hart, that's a big deal. To get the polar bear out of South Dakota when he's being recruited by the Iowas and the Wisconsins, those are Big Ten type alignment that we need to beat those schools. Back in the Big Eight days, Osborne used to always say, we have to be able to compete and beat Oklahoma. It wasn't about beating Kansas and Oklahoma State and that. It was, we have to build a team that can beat Oklahoma. If we can beat Oklahoma, we can beat these other teams, just as a byproduct of it. And right now, I truly believe we don't need to look at this as a negative. It's a positive that we get to play Iowa and Wisconsin every year. These are two teams that have a formula in the trenches on the offense and the defensive lines They know what they're doing. They recruit to a system. They develop players so well. It is literally what Nebraska did for many, many years. And it's probably one of the things that bugs Nebraska fans as much, especially Iowa, since we tend to not like them. It it tends to bother us that, what's Iowa doing? Well, God, they get walk-ons, and they get two-star kids, and they get local kids, and they develop them. And, and geez, back in the day, they'd come into Nebraska and take our guys when, when we wouldn't even go after them half the time. That just irked the heck out of us. But now that Frost has put a shut on that, we are going to get our best players and we're going to develop these in-state kids. And then we're going to go national from that. We're going to get the Wandell Robinsons and the, the Adrian Martinez's and all that. You know, we're going to be able to go national. That's the formula that's, that's going to work at Nebraska, but it's got to start up there in the trenches. You brought up Minnesota, year three of Fleck. You know, they started that season off slow. They could have been beat by South Dakota State, Georgia Southern. They went to overtime with Fresno. That was not a great team early in the year. That wasn't a team that you would have thought was going to do what they did to Auburn in the bowl game. But it was a team that took advantage of that early schedule, built up enough wins, got some momentum so that by the time they could play Nebraska, beat us soundly, and then they beat Penn State. I mean, that's a team that ends up being a top 15 team. I look at Nebraska's schedule next year and kind of see some of that too. The interesting thing about Iowa, because you made a good point about the familiarity now with playing them, but to be able to see them as a benchmark, what they've done in terms of their development from their star rankings to producing NFL draft players is Mm -hmm. sort of astounding. Same thing with Wisconsin. I think interesting to note during the Holiday Bowl, so USC and Iowa in last December, I saw a a stat that said USC's average player was a 4.2, or I think it was, um, Mm -hmm. on the rating scale, and Iowa was a 2.3. And if you watch that game, Iowa dominated that game physically, and I think it was a high-scoring game until USC's quarterback went out. But Iowa, sorry, was the better team by far, and they they showed that. I mean, they had the biggest scoring explosion of the year. So I think that's a really interesting benchmark for Frost to be able to look at. And obviously, you can tell he's got a lot of respect for Kurt Ferentz and mm-hmm. what he's done with that program. And he's referenced that a few times. Frost knows that we have to be a development program. We can't be a program that relies on national recruiting, kind of like Riley did. we got to be able to develop and then be able to, to recruit the 500-mile radius. And then we'll have some success in Florida and we'll have some success, sorry, in Texas. But we can't depend on the formula that they had last year where they recruited very well at the end of the year and got some great players. That's not a sustainable recipe for success. And he knows that. And I think that's encouraging as a fan because I believe the same thing. we got to be able to develop these players. Yeah, that development piece, the Zach Duvall, the War Daddy up movement, all that, that is the history of Nebraska football, Husker power, right? Let's start to talk about some of the other programs. And Iowa is an interesting one because they seem to be the one that gets the ire of us. But there's also this piece of me where it's like, you got to respect what they do. 
everything you just mentioned, they take in the guys that are the two stars and they turn them into great players, or they'd come into Nebraska and take Drew Watts when Bo Pelini wouldn't even give the guy a sniff. That's on us. And they would develop those guys. They had a system. They knew what they were doing. Whatever that system is, so whether it's spread or if it's double tights, I don't really care. Whatever it is, know what you do and do it well. And that's something that you give Iowa credit for, and it's something that I think Frost is getting to, is knowing what that system is, knowing what he wants to do here and, and to do it. I'm going to say one nice thing about Iowa, and then I'll stop. Any other campus across the country that has a children's hospital anywhere on their campus and didn't build it next to a football stadium, they're kicking themselves right now because the wave is the most amazing uh, new tradition in college football. It's the best tradition of this century. It just doesn't matter if you like Iowa or not. That is an amazing thing that they have there. I can't wait to go to a game at Kinnick to watch it. I'm Hopefully, we're going there this year. 100% agree. Yeah, I think that's a great tradition. And I think that, you know, I'll take off my Nebraska hat for a second, too. Just look at Iowa. I hope that's how we develop our players as well. I mean, I think they do a phenomenal job of being able to recruit to their system. They'll pick a guy that uh, maybe has some Mac offers out of Illinois, you know, a cornerback, and they'll put him in that system with Phil Parker. And next thing you know, he's, I mean, I don't know how many players they've turned out in the last three years in that secondary, but it's, I mean, from King to the guy last year, forget his name, but they've had a number of players that have done well in that secondary. That defense is oh, really yeah. good. You could go it's all like, the way back to Sean Prater from Omaha, and the guy was a yeah, two-star right, that we right. didn't go after, right? Sean Prater. And, and so I think as I look at this, you know, for Frost going into year three, one piece of that Iowa program I think is important is the coaching continuity. You know, you have coaches that have been there for a long time. You have coaches that have played at Iowa, and you don't see a lot of turnover there. You know, obviously, they, they Greg Davis there for a long time, and they turned it over to Brian Ferentz. But, you know, you see that, that continuity, the the trust in that well-oiled machine. And, you know, I, I think as Nebraska fans, you, you have to be encouraged going into year three. We've really only had two coaches turn over with, with the recent turnover of offensive coordinator Troy Walters and uh, linebacker coach Javon DeWitt. So I think that piece of it is encouraging, along with the, what you mentioned with the strength and conditioning program with Duvall and Ellis. But, uh, yeah, definitely, I think that's a program, along with Wisconsin, that that you can look at and say, you know, hey, if, if they can do it that way, if they can have a identity, a recruiting philosophy, a coaching mentality, along with a phenomenal strength program, you know, I, I think that's a recipe we can duplicate as well. Yeah. Well, and before the Redcasters think I have a fever or something, let, let me go back. We hate Iowa. They're terrible. They're awful people. We get it. But, <laughs> but you know, we had to at least throw out, you got to give them a couple of props. And I think you're right, too, with Wisconsin. Yeah. Let's talk about another program in the West that you are very familiar with, living up there, is Minnesota. And let's talk about P.J. Fleck and now going into year four. You were able to go to one of their spring practices this year, one of the few that, you know, before the COVID-19 closures of everything. Tell us a little bit about the Gophers. What did you see in that practice? And kind of what are your expectations with them going into year four? Yeah, it's kind of a neat thing for me as a college football fan to be able to, to go and watch a college football practice. We got to go with uh, with Big Kurt and Jeffrey DeGreek, and we took in a couple practices uh, last year. So this is my third time seeing Minnesota up close. And when I say up close, you're like literally on the sidelines. So you're five feet from the players. And I'm six foot three, 180, so I get, you get a real good sense of what these players are size-wise. And like Tanner Morgan, for example, that is probably maybe six foot. It's, it's really interesting. I, I wish that more fans get opportunity to see college football programs practice. But to answer your question, it's funny. It's interesting. They, they have PJ Fleck. He's got a, a microphone, like a, one of those little mics that goes up to your, to your mouth and you got music playing and then he'll interject every five seconds with some direction or a Yada boy or, you know, a station switch. 
And so it's funny how, how that plays out. And kind of interesting enough, I was in line getting ready to go in. They had practices on, on a Friday at 4.30. And right in front of me was Mick Stoltenberg. And I, huh. I said, Mick? And, and he's, he turned around and didn't know who I was. He was there. He's getting into coaching with South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to talk to him a little bit. But, you know, it's interesting to be honky. You know, so Minnesota is coming off an amazing season, right? 11 wins. You mentioned the, the phenomenal bowl game. Um, I think we were talking before this uh, against Auburn, where they dominated an Auburn team that is loaded with NFL talent, especially on the defense. So they come off this amazing win. And I'm thinking it's going to be packed for this practice. There are going to be 500 people online. You know, we'll be lucky to get in. And, uh, you know, Minnesota is an interesting, it's an interesting fan base. It's a, it's a pro sports town. There may have been maybe 150 fans for this practice. Wow. It blew me away. You wouldn't expect that. I thought there'd be a ton of people there, but you know, the practice is high energy. I even asked Nick, I said, how's it compared to, to Nebraska? He said, very similar in terms of the, the, the constant movement. The, you know, there's not a lot of walking done. It's stations, you're running, uh, flex running. <laughs> there's, mm-hmm. so, there's a lot of, a ton of energy going on, uh, in the practice. So it's, it's great. It's fun. It's fun to be there, fun to watch football. And, you know, you kind of get a behind the scenes look for at least an hour on another big West team. So yeah. a lot of notes and, Take a lot of things down on my sheet of paper there. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's awesome. This year, Mac and I, we've gone to every coach's clinic in the spring at Nebraska since Solich. Because of COVID-19, the first weekend of April uh, would have been this year's coach's clinic. This is the first one we haven't been to since then. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about, to be on the field, to be right down there, to be in meeting rooms and talking with yeah. coaches and taking notes and watching film with them and everything. Yeah, we've had the chance to watch Husker practices from the Solich era through Callahan, through Polini, oh, through wow. Riley, and, and those first two years of, of Frost. Yeah, it's a different way to watch the game. And you can get some really great insight on things. You can also see some things wrong. I've walked away from some practices and said, oh, my God, this guy's going to be killer because I saw him on the field do two things I loved. And then, you know, we get to the season and it's like, oh, yeah, he's not quite doing that. You know, so it's interesting there. But you brought up a good point about how the Minnesota fans didn't show up for it. And this is interesting to me. Minnesota was a blue blood. They're not anymore. Boomer on the show has talked about it. There's not a lot of examples of teams that were blue bloods that aren't anymore. It's hard to lose that status. People like to say Nebraska is not a blue blood anymore because we've had a couple of bad seasons. Give me a break. You don't lose it for that. But Minnesota legitimately, from 1900 to 1960, I mean, they were as good as anybody. They were top two, three in the country. Go and look at their ring of championships on their football stadium. And for Husker fans that cry that, you know, our last title is 1999 for conferences, go and look at Minnesota's. I mean, it ends in the early 60s, unfortunately. But up until then, they were a dominant program. And then it stopped. And then the fan interest has kind of gone away. And that's, I almost feel bad for Fletcher because I, I think Fleck is such a perfect coach for what Minnesota needs. And and the people that are like, oh, he's obnoxious and all that. And he is kind of obnoxious. But you need to be a little bit obnoxious to get the attention of the media there. You've got the Vikings. You've got plenty of pro sports. You have plenty of things going on. And he has to be a little bit out like that to just get the, the attention. But the other thing he has to do is just win. And whether we like the guy or not, you know, he's now done this at a couple of programs. I mean, like... Well, he might be kind of good. Without a doubt, yeah. I mean, he's proven himself, like you mentioned, in Western Michigan, where if you look back and you want to look at Big Ten teams, I mean, he, he beat Northwestern. He beat Illinois. 
he gave Wisconsin everything they could handle in that Cotton Bowl. Yep. Uh, his last year there. I mean, you throw in a, a game against Michigan State, 2015, where at halftime that thing was neck and neck, and that's D'Antonio at his at his height. So you're right, proven winner. He's done a phenomenal job building two programs. And look, I'm not a fan of Fleck personally, but I'm a realist and I understand that you know, he's done a, an amazing job. He's, he's built a culture that is able to go for some some rough times in his second year to even in the third year winning three miraculous games they should have lost. Mm-hmm. I mean, games that you're talking about third and thirties they've completed or uh, you know catching the end zone. I mean, they found a way to win these games. And then what you saw from there is this gradual increase in rushing production. The wins kept coming, and you saw a team by the time they played Penn State that was not beating themselves, had an identity, yep. had a ton of energy, a ton of positive energy. I don't know if you ever coached before. or yep. you, I think you've got kids, right? So I have kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I coach soccer. I mean, I, I coach the same way. I hate to say it, but I, I coach a ton of positive reinforcement, a ton of energy, and that's what he's done. And he's inflected this life into a, into a program. And, and you're right. I think I've had my... If you follow me on Twitter, you know that I've taken my shots at him for things that I think are, you kind of look at me or kind of the soapbox approach. But I think there is a need to be able to say to fans and media and to Minnesota, just, hey, we've got a good thing going here. You know, we're winning games and hop on board. And, you know, I've asked this question to fans here in Minnesota. Why aren't you supporting this team more than you are? And a lot of it is like, hey, Jim, we, we really haven't been good, you know, growing up. We didn't really have any good Minnesota teams, and this is something kind of new, but there's still kind of a wait-and-see approach a little bit to it. And I think Flex, like, guys, mm-hmm. hey, we had an 11-win season. We beat Auburn. <laughs> I mean, this, this hasn't happened very often, and, and this is exciting. Yeah, if I'm a Minnesota fan right now, don't wait. Enjoy this and support this right now because traditionally what has happened in college football is that there are the Blue Bloods and there are the other programs that are, to be polite, I'll say they're not Blue Bloods. And what happens is they have a coach that does something well and a Blue Blood comes and snaps the coach up from him. Urban Meyer goes undefeated at Utah. Utah no longer has him. He goes to Florida, right? I mean, that's how it works. But you mentioned earlier with Big Ten money, and that's changed the game. It's changed the game so much that Brom can stay at Purdue instead of going to his alma mater, Louisville, or go to some of the other programs that would have gone after him. Fleck very easily could be getting big-time programs going after him, but he doesn't have to necessarily leave. In fact, you can put up some roots at a place like Minnesota, which isn't a terrible place to live, by the way, if you haven't been up there. The Twin Cities is a great area, and that is a tradition-rich program. And if you can succeed there, my gosh, I mean, that... Why wouldn't you want to be the Barry Alvarez of Minnesota football and have statues and built for you? And, and Fleck has even mentioned that after I think this season he talked about you know wanting to be the the Fitzgerald of Minnesota, the Barry Alvarez of Minnesota, someone that can be there for a long period of time and and really build that program up to heights that it hasn't been before. There's still a lot of Minnesota fans that think that he's gonna leave that uh, once things get rolling that somebody else will grab him. I used to think that, Honky, and I'll be honest, I don't think that's the case anymore. There's two things. I think one you mentioned being able to prove to himself, maybe, or even to the fans that, hey, we can win here in Minnesota. You know, his his sayings and his mantras and his row the boat. I don't know if that's something that could be sold at other programs um, across the country. I, I joke that if he came to, to Lincoln in 2015, there'd be riots in the streets if we tried to rebrand our, <laughs> our program with row the boat. I mean, when you go to Minnesota, when you go to these practices, there are seven or eight slogans plastered all over the walls. 
and that's a huge part of his culture, and Row the Boat is a huge part of his culture. I don't know if that's something that is easily sold somewhere else. So I don't know if that limits his upper mobility, but I certainly think it's something that ADs have to consider if they were going to bring him in. And So I think for that reason, I think that, that he could be a Minnesota for a long time and certainly have a lot of success, as he showed last year. Um, I get a little flack here in Minnesota because I, you know, I'm always pointing out the crazy ego of PJ Fleck, and I get told, "Well, Frost has got an ego too." And he does. I think it comes across a little bit different, than obviously, than Fleck does. But I think in this respect, I think Frost's ego it might have been a detriment at first as he comes into this league and he's kind of thinking, you know, I, I got this. You know, I'm the six-time coach of the year. I, I just beat Auburn. We're gonna have some bumps, but it's gonna be okay. And I think that same ego is what's going to get us out of this. It's now I'm going to win. I'm going to beat these guys. I'm going to get Nebraska back. I'm not going to settle for anything. I'm going to get rid of coaches that aren't cutting it anymore, even though they're my friends. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing in Matt Lubick. I'm making changes. I'm promoting Greg Austin. You know, I think that uh, the ability to kind of not check himself, but certainly be able to look in the rearview mirror and say, okay, two years in, take a deep breath. Where are we at? We lost some games we shouldn't have. We won some games maybe we shouldn't have won. How do I take this next step? How do I beat teams like Indiana that I should beat? I mean, Tom Allen. I mean, come on. I'm a better coach than Tom Allen. You know, and I think that's the interesting part for me is, and I, and I it sucks that this COVID-19 because we don't get a spring. We don't get to see even what developed. But I think that's a big thing. And to give Fleck one more plug, what's fascinating to me about him is uh, he's had nine coaches turnover in three years. You think about that for a second. That's three a year for a, a program that's developing. He'd be able to win despite that. And if we had nine coaches turnover in Nebraska, we'd be freaking out. Right? What's going on? Why is everybody leaving? You know, and mm-hmm. he hasn't. Frost hasn't had that turnover. And so I think that's something that, that hopefully, again, kind of go using the Iowa example that, that he can kind of roll with. Because these coaches, you can tell they really like Frost. They enjoy him. They really look up to him. They have a ton of respect for him. And uh, I think that's important. It's interesting. I go back to when the BTN crew came to Lincoln preseason last year and DiNardo made a point to say, you know, I'm not buying into any of the hype until I see practice. And then he sees practice and he comes out and he's like, oh my gosh, this, you know, he was bought in. He's like, yeah, this team can compete right away. And Frost didn't deter from any of those expectations. In fact, Frost said that the expectations in Lincoln have been far too low for far too long. Uh What's interesting to me is after year two of this now, you do get a bit of a sense from, I know Athletic Director Moose a couple of times has made the kind of the push back a little bit and say, hey, you know, we might still be a couple of years away. And I can speak for Mac. We look at that sometimes and we're like, okay, wait, now are we pushing back on these expectations? Like we want the expectations to be really high. And we understand that this is a process, especially in football where there's 85 guys. This is different from basketball and Hoiberg where you can maybe flip a roster really quickly, a year or two. We understand if it takes three years to really get your roster in order, we're totally behind that. But right now, if someone sits there and tells me we're a couple of years away, we're a couple of years away from what? If you're telling me we're two years away from beating Ohio State and playing in playoffs, I'm like, okay, cool. Hey, great. Then that already means next year needs to be a transition year to get to that point, right? I mean, next year, we're not just going bowling. We're finally getting the Iowa and Wisconsin monkeys off of our back. Even on the road, who cares? We're going to go into the Camp Randall because in two years, we're going to be playing in the playoff. Or does a couple of years away mean that we're two years away from 
beating Iowa and Wisconsin. That's not going to fly. That stuff doesn't fly right now with Husker fans. I think they're seeing the recruiting is going up. I think we we saw last year that there was a very concentrated effort to redshirt a bunch of guys that could have probably helped us win one or two games last year, which now that we look back in hindsight, one or two games would have been really key. If I could tell you, we if we would have not redshirted three guys, and I'm not even naming the players. I'm just saying three guys don't redshirt, but that was enough of a difference to, to win one extra game and we go 6-6 six and six and get to a bowl game, would you have taken that? Would you have rather us not redshirted those three guys to get to that bowl game? For me, yes, I would. It's, I think in today's college football, and I, I get the redshirting, and I get that mindset of again, going back to the development program, but I also understand that I, I think you need to be able to show the fans, maybe that aren't like you and I that understand kind of the, the long-term approach, but we got to win some games, and I, mm-hmm. I think getting to a bowl game would have been huge for just the mindset of the state of Nebraska a little bit in terms of like, hey, there is some growth here, and if we continue to recruit the way we have, then that redshirt of that individual player or two, I don't think means that big of a deal in the long scheme of things. I'll be honest, I, I, a guy that I thought that really shouldn't have redshirted at all was Ramir Johnson, and I don't know exactly everything that went into it. I'm sure there's some things that he needed to do, and I think he might even wanted to redshirt. But that's a guy that is going to be relied upon a ton next year mm-hmm. as you look at this roster. And, you know, outside of a game in Maryland, do we know what we've got there? I was looking at it like, should we go out and get a grad transfer for the running back room? I looked at the roster broken down by class, and there's still a few gaps. And this happens when you have coaching transitions. Our gaps right now are basically in fourth-year senior juniors and some of the redshirt sophomore class guys. That's still where our gaps are because that's basically the last year of Riley and the first year of Frost. And again, around coaching transitions, that's when you're going to have some guys that end up leaving early and all that. You look at running back right now, and I love Mills. And I really like our four freshman and redshirt freshman running backs. But because Maurice Washington leaves and because Jalen Bradley's no longer here, we have a gap of no juniors or no sophomores. That's, That's a big gap. And it's one of the reasons why, to your point, I think playing Ramir Johnson last year, just as one example, just having him coming back as a sophomore because he played in seven games or eight games, whatever it would have been, could have been very beneficial right now. You can go back to our Redcast show right after the Minnesota loss because we were going into our first of what was going to be two bye weeks in the in the matter of four weeks. And I made the point at that time that we still have five games left and we were four and three. We only have to win two games. We're going bowling and, and we're going to win two games. My gosh, we have these home, home games against Indiana and Maryland. We're going to win two games for Christ's sakes. But I'm like, if there's a guy like Ben Hart, should we be pulling him out right now? And I go, you're not wasting anybody's year. If you're going to give them five games of playtime, multiple bye weeks, you're going to get another 15 practices for a bowl game. You're going to play in the bowl game. And if we step onto the field next year in week one against Purdue and Ben Hart is our starting right tackle and he's got six or seven games under his belt, that is not a wasted redshirt a year ago to pull him out. Now, for reasons that maybe I don't know, I'm not the coach, I'm not Austin, I don't know if Ben Hart was ready or not, but they obviously didn't make that decision with him, and and they didn't make it with Johnson, and they stuck with the redshirting policy that they had. But again, it, it all comes back to that initial question that we had, and I agree with you 100%. If playing one or two or three guys could have been the difference in just one game, I agree, we needed the wins. <laughs> yeah, you know, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, of course, but when that Mel Washington situation, when that clearly had run its course, you know, at that point, not only am I looking at for this past year, but I'm looking at it for next year going, if he's not going to be around, we need another running back. To me, it's Ray Johnson. And I'm not a coach, obviously, but it just seems like that would have been the next logical solution 
you're in that role. I want six games, and we're going to get you ready. I mean, how big would it have been to have Johnson against Iowa? You know, I, I think he would have made a difference there. I think, you know, he would have done some things with the speed on the, on the outside. Could have helped. So, you know, I'm not a coach, but it just seems like there there's an opportunity there to play some players. I mean, I'm not going to compare us to Ohio State, but, you know, Urban Meyer, when he was there, I mean, they played freshmen all mm-hmm. the time. USC under Pete Carroll, that was his thing. I mean, if you were a freshman, you were good, you were going to play. Especially how we're recruiting as of late. I don't think of a running back being at Nebraska for five years. I, I think, you know, you're looking at three to four years for, for a running back, hopefully, right? Yeah, it used to be um, a thing where if a guy was redshirting as a running back, what's wrong? Those guys, what's wrong, your, your right? best running backs yeah. are the ones that played right away. What I like about this conversation, Jim, and this is something that I see with a lot of Nebraska fans that we talk with, I think we can have intelligent, smart conversations. Sometimes we have to get off of Twitter to do it. But I like having these intelligent conversations where we can be critical of the team that we support and yet, you know, see the positives. I mean, we're not just ragging on the guys. We're not sitting there saying fire every coach or, you know, fire these guys because they didn't play these red shirts. We're not saying that. We, we understand there's a lot of things that happen and a lot of moving parts that go on in a season. But let's move forward and let's for a second now, let's put on the scarlet colored glasses. Let's put on your most positive face towards Nebraska in 2020. We're going to assume that there's a season. <laughs> we're going to okay. assume that we play all the games that we're going to play. And I'm going to just, I'm going to throw out what, what sounds like a crazy number. We're going to go 10 and 2. We're going to exceed all the expectations. What gets Nebraska to that 10 and 2 kind of number? So two things for me, I, I think the two people that are most important to this equation are Greg Austin and Matt Lubick. I think the upgrade or the, I guess, if you want to say the uh, promotion from, for Greg Austin to run game coordinator, I think is huge because what I liked about Austin was he was very critical at times throughout the year. And even in the spring, uh, he talked about his frustration with not running the ball or not being heard from the other coaches as far as how we should run the ball. He felt against Iowa, we should run the ball right at Iowa. And uh, I think there was games against Indiana where we should run the ball more. So I think the combination of those two and Matt Lubick coming from the Oregon background where you know Chip Kelly was a little bit different than Frost was in terms of the run-pass mix. You know, look at a Chip Kelly offense, it's, it's more in the 60-40, even 65 range where you're run-based. You know, Frost was more in his years at UCF and in Nebraska, he was more in that uh, 55 pass range or that uh, 50-50 kind of run pass range. So I, I hope that I, what I think is going to happen is that we're going to be more centralized with the run. And I hope that's Dedrick Mills. I hope that he is the, the focal point. He is the ground to pound. He is the kind of going back to our previous conversation. He is the one or, or the mindset of we're going to run when we want to. And I think that Greg Austin is going to bring that element. You've already seen Matt Lubick talk about Greg Austin, how important he's going to be to the offense. And I like that. I'm excited about seeing more of a physical run game that I think you have to have in the Big Ten to be successful. And I think they can still be true to themselves. They can do the things that make Nebraska and Frost offense successful with Martinez and the RPOs and the other things that they've been able to do, but be able to have an identity in the run game. I think that's important. So for me, at least, I think it starts there. I like the additions in the secondary. I think you're going to see some more speed, some more physicality uh, back there. I'm a little, I guess, concerned, hopefully maybe optimistic at some point about the linebacker play. I think that's going to be probably the biggest thing for us on defense and how that kind of materializes. I like Mike Dawson at outside linebackers. I think he's going to mm-hmm. bring a different style, different level of accountability. I think we were lacking at times last year. 
But uh, to go back to your question, I, I think it has to start with a physical run game. You know, I was frustrated a little bit last year, you know, with, with Dietrich Mills. It took him a couple games, maybe two or three games, to really kind of get the nuances of the offense down. But by that fourth game, I think it was Northern Illinois, he had things figured out. And we thought at that point, even against Ohio State, ran the ball well. We thought, okay, here we go. It's going to be a Dedrick Mills central focused offense. And then Minnesota came and I thought for sure, adverse weather, Dedrick Mills, here we go. He wasn't even part of the offensive game plan. It was, it was centralized around Mo Washington. Indiana, he had two carries in the first half. Yeah. Wando Robinson yeah. was getting the bulk of the carries in that first half against Minnesota. And it's like, good Lord, we're going to get the guy killed and he ends up getting hurt. Right. You know, right. He only had 17 yeah. carries against, uh, Wisconsin, when he was averaging 11 yards a carry, he ends, <laughs> let's feed the guy. And so that's hopefully what happens next year. 100% agree. And I think you, you're going to have that element. I think that will be part of Lubick's attack. And, and now you added some more running backs behind him to be able to give him some depth. And, and hopefully we have a more experienced offensive line that another year under their belt with you know guys like Cameron Jurgens and maybe with the addition of Bryce Benhart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we can have even more of a, a physicality run style. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I think last year the the group that saw the biggest growth from game one to to Iowa was the offensive line. One hundred percent agree. I, I think the easy thing to look at is the center play, which obviously you're taking a guy like Jurgens, who at the beginning of the year hadn't played football in a couple of years and was switching positions, things looked pretty bad at, at first. So some of the snaps were all over the place. But by the end of the year, not only was that getting taken care of, but he was one of our best blockers by the end of the year. And the athleticism that he brings to the position, getting to the second and third levels of the defense, you started to see. What would have been interesting, we didn't get to see it because we didn't put Ben Hart in there, but the move, the potential move of getting Farniak into a guard spot and having Ben Hart playing tackle, which is what most people are kind of assuming is going to happen here next season anyways. Those are the things that, like, when we're playing Iowa, if you look at Epineza and you watch him against Hymas, Hymas had a very good game. This is a kid that I, I think it gets lost right now. Hymas is playing at an NFL level. He's going to get drafted if he keeps on the level that he's playing at. Epineza didn't have success against him, but they would move Epinesa into a nose guard kind of position, and he was going up against our guards, and and he was having some success at that time. Well, if you move Farniak in, if you have Ben Hart at right tackle, that changes some of the dynamics. And I'm not trying to call out any one player, because even if it was Hickson as an example, even if he's not starting for us next year, I'll take Hickson as a sixth or a seventh guy on our line. I mean, we're going to have more depth at that very crucial spot, the spot that we talked about earlier so much with Iowa and Wisconsin, how they built it up. We're going to have depth at that spot next year. And Austin was the first one, you know, to say it early in spring practice during the press conference. We have no excuse this year. You know, we have all the depth and we have all the experience and we've got the players and it, these guys have to perform. And I 100% agree with them there. And I, and it is going to start and end with that O-line. We're still young on offense at a lot of those skill positions, but we're not on the line. We need to have an offensive line that, that makes Nebraska proud again, and that has to happen next year with that group. I agree. And I, I think there's one small piece I'd like to see take that next step, and I, I'm a big Greg Austin fan. And I, I love the accountability piece, and I love the mindset that he has and he talks about. But, you know, I think I look back to – we watched recently on ESPN you know, the, the 97 Nebraska Missouri game and you know we always get a lot of flack for thinking about the 90s all the time but 
I think we need somebody that's just nasty on the offensive line. Someone that's going to be that yard dog. And I, yep. don't, I, I think Hymas is, is, a, is a great player. And I, I liked what I saw from him in, in the spring in terms of his presence at the podium. But there isn't that, that just that nasty yard dog type of player on the offensive line that I've seen. You know, Reinhardt's yeah. a quiet guy. Obviously, he's finding his way. We don't know if he's going to start or not. But by all accounts, they're all really good players. They're all... Um, outstanding individuals, but there's not that that person that's going to bark out to the defense or you know pick up the quarterback when he's on the ground and be that nasty presence. And I, I'd I'd like to see us get to that point where we have some guys at the front that are just just some bad dude. The guy that comes to mind immediately, and this goes back to as you were saying, like when you went and watched the Minnesota practice, when Mac and I have gone to the Husker practices the last couple of years, Farniak was the guy that was leading the drills. Farniak was the guy that was that vocal dude, mm, and okay. He would be the guy that immediately comes to mind next year. But Jurgens is the guy that, to me, he arguably should not have been playing last year. In, <laughs> in normal situations, he wouldn't be playing. But he did. And he took his lumps. And he's going to be better because of it. And, I'm, and moving forward, I'm so glad he took his lumps last year. He is a kid that I think he can be vocal as he gets more confident. Austin started to talk about just in the two practices of spring – how Jurgens would be coming off the field and telling him things that he never was saying a year ago. He was seeing things after a play or, you know, so he's starting to kind of, the game is slowing down, so to speak, right? And all the athleticism for that kid is there. Nobody, nobody projected him to be a center other than, you know, Dave Ellis and Duvall and those coaches that when they bring the guy in, they do hand size and they, how big can this guy get? Everyone's projecting this guy to be a D end or a tight end or whatever. And, a center? Are you kidding me? But you start to see him and you go, you know what? I can see it. We've talked on Twitter back and forth with Dave Remington about it. Remington was known for being able to make the snap and be, and pulling as he's snapping the ball. He basically became an extra blocker on some plays because you would never design this play to have a center lead or whatever it was. But Remington was talented enough to do it. And if you have players that can do that, especially at the center spot, it can completely change the way you call some plays because it gives you an extra blocker, an extra player just because of what they're able to do. Now, that also takes a lot of skill and it takes a lot of snaps. I remember Remington saying it takes snaps in pressure situations. And this gets to practice scenarios too where live drills, and Frost has preached this. He's talked about wanting to do a lot of live stuff. And if you want to get guys good and you want to get guys good in real-time situations, man, you have to have best versus best. You have to have physical practices, contact. Those are things that Urban Meyer has preached on that. I mean, you do just about everything other than the quarterbacks are going to have some green jerseys. I get that. But outside of that, man, we need physicality. And even if it's just one or two practices a week and just for parts of it, it just needs to be parts of it. But you got to have that. And and you do that. And I mean, I think we're going to see exponential growth out of our players across the board. You know, I think the challenge for, for Jurgens is going to be keeping weight on. I think I heard the coaches say they need him to be around 280. 285. His challenge is being able to eat and maintain those those calories and be able to be at that weight. Because he's, you're right. He's. I mean, we forget when he was offered a scholarship by Riley, he was a you know tight end, and you know he was pretty wiry back then. So Mm -hmm. he's got the frame and so forth. But you know, can he keep that weight? And I'm excited. I I think he's going to be a phenomenal player. You you saw the the maturation and and the the confidence. Really, is I think the huge thing there. And he's a special player. I think he's going to be really good. Jim, this has been great. I've, I've enjoyed this, and, and I would love to bring you back again here for another another yeah, chat on the Redcast. 
something that uh, we always do on the show is, is do some parting shots. What's your final take here, you know, uh, before you head off into the off season? Well, I, I hope that one, we were able to come back after this off season and after this COVID-19 and we can have at least some semblance of a season. If that's six games or eight games, I can't imagine uh, next year without a season. So I also want to add that I, you know, I really enjoy your guys' show. I like the fact that you guys can look at Nebraska football as fans, but also as realists and understand that you know, not everything is rose-colored glasses. <laughs> and there are some things that we, you know, as fans, have to be able to, to look at and be, and be critical, but also look at the whole thing and be excited about having a program like this and being fans of, I think, the greatest program in the country. So thanks for having me. It was a great time, and I appreciate uh, what you guys do for Husker fans and Husker football. Thank you, Jim, and uh, we'll call that a Go Big Redcast. Go Big Redcast.